Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. TRP is a church affiliated with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. Our current sermon series is a study on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Even though Paul was addressing theological controversies embedded within a first century Jewish context, we believe that there are some very important modern day applications. Perhaps the most notable is the sufficiency of faith in Jesus for salvation and the unity we find in him. Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. We're going to continue in our sermon series on the book of... Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 4. I'll be reading a few verses from uh, 21 through 31. Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The word of God for the people of God. Now that is a very thick Uh, passage that we are looking at. But what I want to do is kind of do a little bit of review as we get into this text. And basically, if we could summarize what we've learned over the last 10 or so weeks in the book of Galatians, it is this. Circumcision, bad. Jesus and the Spirit, good. Paul's whole set of teaching that he has given to these Galatian churches deals with circumcision and how some people had snuck into these churches and preached a gospel that goes beyond just Jesus. It's a gospel that adds circumcision and food laws and Sabbath observance and other sorts of Jewish identity markers that they were demanding new Christians to take on for themselves. And what Paul keeps saying is, no, 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 circumcision bad, at least in this sense, for what this ancient community was doing with it. For them, it was a marker of who's in and who's out. And what Paul was saying is, no, Jesus and the Spirit is good. The things that we've been learning from this passage is the reclaimed role of Jesus for salvation. Back in the early church and now, there's things that we add to the Christian faith in order to be 
in, whether that's the right doctrinal beliefs or the right practices, a lot of times we take our trust and our faith in Jesus and we add to it. And this is what we've seen throughout the book of Galatians where these Jewish Christian missionaries are sneaking in saying, it's not just about Jesus, it's about Jesus and, or Jesus plus all of these things. And we see that still in our communities today, but we are wanting to champion the reclaimed role of Jesus for salvation. We also see in this gospel, it's a radically inclusive gospel. That might be a, um, an explosive word in our context, but to see people being included that had formerly been excluded, the people on the margins and the outskirts that are being brought into the family, and to have a first century former Jewish rabbi be the one, or first century Jewish um, former Pharisee, excuse me, bringing the people in, the one who had cared about the law so much, he was so zealous for it that he was going to Jerusalem to try to find Christians and to, to bring them back to Jerusalem, going to Damascus and bringing them back to Jerusalem. Gosh sakes, I'm struggling today. But this is Paul. He's, he's doing these things, and he becomes the one that is championing radical inclusion of the gospel. And in our context today, we see that sort of inclusion as well, or we at least should. There's also an emphasis on the unity of the church. And for our specific moment in time, this is a message that needs to be heard because the church is radically divided. We see different uh, segments and sections that are over here and over there without any sort of real meaningful community together. The capital C church is hurting because everyone is uh, pushing the agendas of the small C local churches and how those kingdoms are built and not seeing how the bigger kingdom is being built. But for what Paul is saying is we need to understand that all these people at the table, they're radically diverse and we should celebrate that. Understanding that the people across from us might not think like we do or believe like we do, but at the center of their identity is Jesus. And as we'll see in the next chapter or so, um, there's an example of trusting in the spirit that Paul is trying to say, hey, Galatian churches, trust the experience that you have had with Jesus. Trust that spirit that has been moving in you, guiding you since the time of your conversion. Allow that to be something that moves you and guides you and shapes you. And these are the things that we have been looking at in the book of Galatians. Now, we've also seen Paul being a, a biblical interpreter. As a former Pharisee, he knows the scriptures well. It just kind of comes out in his speech, so much so that when we read whatever it is that he's written, there's so many echoes or underlying acknowledgments back to the Old Testament. It just comes out in his speech as some of the movies that we like or the shows that we like. It just comes out in the way that we speak or talk to our friends. There's things that we have become so embedded in that we just sneak them into conversation. This is what Paul is doing with the Old Testament, but here in Galatians from chapter three, verse six, on through chapter four, he's been rereading the Old Testament for his purposes so that he can try to convince the Galatian churches that Jesus is in fact enough. He has been going back to these ancient texts to say that these are the things that are pointing us in this direction where you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to observe food laws, you don't need to observe the Sabbath, Paul has been the biblical interpreter. Last week, we saw Paul moving beyond that for a couple of seconds to kind of plead with these people. It was an emotionally filled treatise where he's just begging and pleading with these people that they would understand who they are and who they have been called to be. And now in the text that I just read you, the really weird and esoteric text that I just read you, Paul is going back into his first century Jewish Christian biblical interpreter Role. He's moving beyond experience and he's going back to the text. Specifically, he's looking 
at a passage that deals with Abraham. It says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. What Paul has been doing throughout this text is privileging Abraham as the father of the Jewish faith and using Abraham as a stepping stone to now argue that Jesus is the savior. This is a strange move for Paul, but when he introduces Abraham and his kids, one that has been... uh, born through a free woman and one who has been born through a slave woman, he is implicitly introducing two women. Sarah, which we might recognize if we have spent any amount of time in the church and any amount of time reading our Bible. If you've tried to go through the Bible in a year and you've gotten into those first 15 or so chapters, you've met Abraham and Sarah. Hagar, however, might not be on your radar screen. So instead of going back and like ripping this passage apart, I thought we could actually go back to the Old Testament to retell some of these stories and set the framework for what we're talking about here as Paul is using these two women, Sarah and Hagar, as an example for the Galatian churches and the freedom that they have in Jesus. Meredith and I were joking the other day. We both spent a lot of time at this local coffee shop and she popped in one day and I said, hey, do you think it would be bad if I just kind of skipped this section because We've just heard this. We've heard Paul being a biblical interpreter. We've heard this Old Testament stuff. I think we're kind of tired of it. And she was like, yeah, I think that'd be fine. And you guys know that I'm kind of slightly to mildly to maybe a bit uh, obsessive compulsive. And I thought, well, I can't skip stuff. So I'm going to devote two weeks to this passage. Uh, I apologize for that. But this week, we're going to go back to the Old Testament because as I thought about this, like my degree is in Old Testament studies. I get really excited about the Old Testament. So tonight, hopefully you guys will catch some of my passion about the Old Testament as we make sense of this text. Now, I will say what Paul is doing is completely strange. Paul is celebrating Sarah and pushing Hagar off to the side. But what we see as we read the Old Testament, I don't know if this is just me or if this will be you as well, but there's a soft spot in my heart for Hagar. She kind of gets the raw deal, not once, but twice. And we see how this begins to play out in the Old Testament narrative. Now, before we talk about Abraham, we kind of need to understand the book of Genesis as a whole. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are what is called the primeval history. Say primeval history makes my heart so happy to hear you say that. Genesis 1 through 11, we have these ancient stories from creation. When God is creating all of the, the known world, there's an interesting, okay, I just need to, need to back up, need to settle myself here because I could get going on some tangents. There's the creation text that we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and I would actually argue that we have two creation texts, one in Genesis 1 and another one in Genesis 2. Then we have what we have referred to as the fall episode where we have Adam and Eve and they're taking this fruit that is forbidden and they're eating it. We don't know what it is, um, but they're eating this fruit and sin is introduced into the world. Now, no Jewish interpreter would refer to this as the fall. That's a very Christian way of thinking about this. And from that act, we attribute the sinfulness of all people to this one act because that's what Paul seems to do with it. But as you see this narrative play out, we have this whole set of texts from one through 11 where 
sin reaps as consequences and bad gets bad and bad gets worse. So we have Adam and Eve and they're eating this fruit and they're banished from the Garden of Eden. They have some kids, Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. And then we have the flood narrative where the only righteous person in the world is Noah and God puts him on a boat and we think it's like really nice and cute and we tell our kids this story because it's got furry animals and we skipped over the fact that everyone else in the world is dead. Like that's just not, that's not the go to bed story that we usually tell our, our children. And then we have the, uh, the Tower of Babel. We have bad on top of bad on top of bad on top of bad in the Old Testament in these first 11 chapters until we finally meet Abram who becomes Abraham. And it's at this turn where God begins to, to work out his promises with his people, moving from the primeval history and how humanity has jacked up creation, has made wrong choices over and over and over. Even Noah, the righteous one, as soon as he gets off the boat, he plants a vineyard and then he gets drunk and naked and passes out over somewhere off to the side and his kids walk in on him. It's a very strange text, but we don't have really good examples from Genesis 1 through 11 of things going right, but now we meet Abraham and the rest of the patriarchs, his kids, Isaac and Jacob, and perhaps even Joseph. In the rest of the, the chapters of Genesis, this is how God is beginning to rebuild or recreate through his, his chosen people. In Genesis 12, it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We have this text here that is rich with import. You can see here, I've circled and underlined some stuff. This is not my implicit way of saying you should circle these things or underline these things in your Bible. That's not how it works for me. I don't know if you guys are underlining type people or just keep your Bible super clean. I'm talking very fast. I don't know why. Uh, but we can see here, I will make you into a great nation, Abram. You're my guy. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless those and curse those, curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and Paul. Paul has gone back to this time and time again because this is the foundational principle through which God is going to reach his people. Abram, it's through you and your offspring. I'm going to bless the world. This comes on the heels of all of the sin and all of the brokenness in the first 11 chapters. And we don't really know why of all people, God singles out Abram and says, Abram, you're it. But in this text, we have Abram as the one through whom God is going to bless the world and it begins this journey over the next 13 or so chapters of Abraham's life where he is trying to work this out, where he has these promises that are made to him, where he has God revealing himself in a way that is so, so tangible. And the message of that is, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your name is going to be great. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you all of these things and everything is going to be blessed through you. And then life happens. The very next story we have of Abram, I don't have it on my slides, but I'll go ahead and tell you. And I've also said to myself, this sermon could be 20 minutes or 75 minutes. I don't know because the Old Testament is pretty exciting. I'll try to keep it somewhere in between that 20 minute and 75 minute um, period. However, the very next story we have of Abram as he's trying to figure this out is they're, they're going through Egypt and he says, listen, Sarah, you're smoking hot. 
she's really old at the time, uh, like in her late 60s or so, but he's like, listen, baby, you still got it. Um, and if we're gonna walk through this place, uh, you're gonna have to tell people that you're my sister because when they see you, baby, they're gonna want you. And this is an ancient world, lady, so they're gonna kill me and they're gonna take you. So let's just say that you're my sister. So we go from God saying, Abram, you're my guy. I'm gonna bless the whole world through you to Abram like going and, and walking through this land saying like, listen, um, you're gonna have to do some lying for me here because uh, I don't wanna die, but I'm willing to give you up, which he does. And he gets rich off of it. It's crazy that the story that we see in the ups and downs in Abram or Abraham's life where he's on this journey trying to figure out what it is that God is teaching him and telling him. It says after this, not just after the episode of um, Abram and, and Sarai walking around in, in Egypt and him giving up his, his wife into a king's harem, more or less. After this, these other stories, the word of the Lord came to Abram again in a vision. It says, do not be afraid, afraid Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This is the problem. God said, I am going to make you great, Abram. But prior to this, we see back in Genesis 11, the very first thing that we learn about his wife, Sarai. We learn that she's smoking hot later. That's in the second half of chapter 12. But the first thing that we learn about her is she's childless because she was not able to conceive. So the very first spoken promise that God is making to Abram demands that he believes the miracle will happen. Because up to this point, his 60-some-year-old wife has not had a child which this is not like the epic of, of family planning. This is not, in the ancient Near East, you're not like, listen, I love you, but I've got things that I need to do before we settle down to have a family. It's like, this is your expectation as a woman is to have kids and not only to have kids, but to have male children so that the line will be extended. But we learn that Sarai is childless because she was not able to conceive. And we learn that early on in the narrative. And now God keeps talking to Abram about these promises. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. It's not about Eliezer. Trust me on this, Abram. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God continues to lay this on pretty thick. And Abe then says, all right, put your name on it. I used to watch this, uh, this sports talk show and they would always get mad at the anonymous people that would just make claims about sports teams. And at the end, they'd say, put your name on it. If you're gonna say something crazy, put your name on it. If you're gonna say that the Eagles are gonna win the Super Bowl, put your name on it. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting very excited about that, okay? Um, but in this text, what Abram is wanting God to do is to put his name on it because God keeps saying all of these things are going to come to pass. And even though we learn that Abram believed the Lord and it says that he credited it to him as righteousness, he also goes on to say, sovereign Lord, how will I know that I will gain possession of this? God, put your name on it. 
Give me something that I can tangibly hold on to here when the days get long and when I begin to doubt what you're doing. So in Genesis chapter 15, this is a beautiful ancient Near Eastern story that demonstrates who God is and what God is promising at this time. When Abe says, God, I need you to put your name on it, he comes back and says, fine, I will. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And I want you to take the cattle and I want you to separate it and cut it in half. And I want you to make an aisle. Don't cut the birds in half because that's a little bit too crazy, okay? So we're gonna make this aisle where we've got half of an animal over here and half of an animal over here. And what, what they would do in the ancient Near East is they would cut a covenant like this. And the two parties of the covenant, they would walk through this aisle together with the implication of all these dead animals on either side of me. If I break the terms of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And the two parties would kind of march down with this understanding that they would join into a covenant together. Now, this story in Genesis 15 is really weird because God says, all right, I'm going to put my name on it. You bring me all the stuff that we need for this to go down. And it says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Jewish interpreters do a lot of fun stuff with that, but we're not going to touch it today. Verse 13, it said, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that's not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions." You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. So God is going on to this, um, going through this, this process and this ritual, but Abe is asleep off to the side. And then it says, when the sun had set and darkness had, had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. Now, I've been on a kick here the last six to nine months about what this looks like. We've got a, a torch and a smoking fire pot, and I've been wondering if this is like a, a cauldron. I'm kind of in that Harry Potter mode of life, but it's like a cauldron with the little claw feet and a torch. Like, does it, does it hover and float down the aisle, or does it kind of waddle along down the aisle? Like, what's that, what's that image? That's strange and that's how my mind works. But the interesting thing about this is these two images of smoke and fire, this is how God manifests himself throughout the Old Testament. And in this image, the important thing that we have to note is Abe saying, God, put your name on it. All right, well, let's cut a covenant. But here's the twist. Abe, you stay over there. I'm going to take care of this myself. And as the fire and the, the smoking fire pot goes down this Isle. It symbolizes that God goes down himself. It's a unilateral covenant. Abe, I got you. And if this thing doesn't work out, may what happened to these animals happen to me. I got to throw this in there just because I think it's cool. When you go back to the flood of Noah, right? God has flooded the entire world. And then at the end, they go out and there's a rainbow in the sky. And it's like, this is the sign of my covenant that I will never again destroy the world through water. You guys remember that? And now every time you're like, you, see a, you see a rainbow in the sky, you're like, oh man, that's really cute. I love that. That's so nice. God is so good. He's not going to kill us all again. That's, that's so good. But the Hebrew word for bow is just that bow. It's the same one that you pull and you draw on animals. And some people have wondered that if you have a rainbow in the sky like this, 
that it would symbolize a bow that is drawn, but it's drawn up into the air. And God is saying to us, may it be done to me if I break my covenant with you to again destroy this earth. It's less cute, but it's freaking awesome. Because God is saying, I will not break this covenant because I'm in this with you. So Abe asked God to put his name on it. He continues and saying like, I'm going to take care of this, Abe. And this is where we get into Genesis chapter 16. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, just a chronological note here on what's going on in this passage. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram is 75 years old. In Genesis 16, when he and Sarai are wheeling and dealing and trying to figure out who's going to be the child of promise, this is about 10 years later. It says Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Ten years. God shows up and says, Abe, I got you. You're going to be great. I'm going to make a nation to come through you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those who bless those and curse those who curse you, and all the world is going to be blessed through you. And then one day turns into two, and two days turns into a month, and a month turns into a year, and a year turns into 10, and the promise has not been fulfilled, which makes sense then when you go to Genesis chapter 16, and they're trying to hatch this big plan of what's going on here. Verse 4, it says, Abram slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And then a problem arises. Can you imagine that? When a man is married to a woman, and then he sleeps with her maidservant. Can you imagine the problem that may arise with that? I have in here, when a bad idea proves to be even worse than what you think it is, what happens is Hagar immediately becomes pregnant, which is a bad, uh, a bad deal. The text says when she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, that is, Sarai. There's different ways that you can translate that. Basically, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, if the wife can't get pregnant, and then she hands over a maidservant to get pregnant, and the maidservant does, the roles sort of shift and reverse, and they begin to see each other differently. It's unclear how Hagar is actually looking at Sarai here, but there's obviously stress and tension then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows uh, she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me and you. And you can only imagine Abram's response. Baby, baby, what baby? Baby, baby. Verse six, your slave is in your hands, he says. Do, uh, do with her whatever you think is best. So Sarai mistreated Hagar. And from this, there's this mistreatment that could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be verbal. We don't know. But Sarai now does not like Hagar because Hagar has become pregnant and she has not been able to conceive for years and years and years. And perhaps some 
of the couples, the young married couples in the, in the room have dealt with this, where you might be trying for a long time to have kids, and then your friends that you love, that mean the world to you, get married, roll out of bed, and immediately they're pregnant on their honeymoon, and through gritted teeth you say, I'm so happy for you, but I really don't like you right now. Like you, you're, you're straddling that, I am so happy for you, but I'm also, I can't understand why God is leaving us out here in this right now. And we have Hagar and, and Sarai who are, who are dealing with this tension. So the short of the story is Sarah gets so ticked that she casts Hagar out into the wilderness where while she's in the wilderness, an angel of the Lord appears and says, listen, I got you. You're going to have a son. You're gonna name him Ishmael, and nations are going to come from him. You'll be okay. And then the narrative about Abram continues on, and we don't hear about these people for quite some time. In Genesis 17, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless, then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. God is still talking about this covenant. He says, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of many nations. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant with you as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, this is what you must do. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And this is the bit where Paul and these Jewish Christian missionaries keep going back and forth. This is the rooting of this where God says, listen, Abram, I've been with you all this time. I'm going to continue to be with, it, with you even though you can't see it, but here's the deal. You've got to be circumcised. Now, what's interesting about this is, and we don't usually get into this, when this happens, Abram is 99 years old and Ishmael is 13 years old. Both get circumcised at the same time. God is still talking about all of these promises and Abe is sitting here with his 13-year-old boy trying to wrap their minds around what is going on and what God is up to. And then finally, in Genesis chapter 21, and this is where we're gonna kind of bring it to land here. After all this time, we finally have a new baby that shows up. Sarah finally becomes pregnant. And there's really cool stories in Genesis chapter 18 about how this comes about. You should check that out. The Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. She became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. And everything is going great. Isaac means he laughs. Like there's laughter in the household. Sarah is tickled to death because she finally has this, this promised baby that has been announced 25 years previously. 25 years of waiting for God to show up, to do the things that he said he was going to do. 25 years, that is longer than some of you on this side of the room have even been alive. Maybe some of you on this side of the room too, not to discriminate. 
but your entire life you've been waiting for God to do the thing that you know he said he was going to do. And then finally it comes to pass and everything is great until, until two to four years later when Isaac is being weaned. Now you have to understand in the ancient Near East, these guys partied at anything. So when a baby was weaned, it's like, let's break out some of the good stuff because this is, it's go time. Right? You could even think about, you know, the mom not being, I don't know if how, I was going to say, you know, the mom could finally have a drink after all this time, but I don't think that they were that medically conscious of what's going on. Sarah's in the back shaking her head. I apologize for that uh, tangent there. So the child, it says, grew and was weaned. And on the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast as you do. I think we should reinstall that. Um, back into our culture. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. Nobody really knows quite what that means. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for the woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. This is what keeps going on between these two women. Sarah now has Isaac, but she can't stand Ishmael. Some think that the word there for mocking means that, that Ishmael is laughing or that Ishmael is doing what Isaac should be doing. Some people think that he's like tormenting him as an older brother. We don't know, but Sarah gets so ticked that she again moves them out into the wilderness. And we have this story here where Abe is distressed at what's going on. He doesn't want to get rid of his son Ishmael. He doesn't want to cast Hagar out into the wilderness but God shows up and says, don't be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation because he is your offspring. So early in the morning, what Abe does is he gives her some food. He gives her some water. He packs them up and he sends them out into the wilderness. And the very next uh, text that we see here, says she goes on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, we don't know how long that took. It says she put the boy, remember the 13 to 15 year old boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away for she thought I cannot watch the boy die. As she sat there, she began to sob. Strange story. The way that this is reconciled is God shows up again and it says, I didn't hear you crying, but I heard the boy crying. And I want you to know, Hagar, that I'm gonna be in this with you. I'm gonna take care of him. In fact, it says in verse 20 that God was with the boy as he grew up. And this is one of the first times we hear this phrase in the Bible where God shows up. There's something that's in this text that I wanted to call our attention to where we have this moment where Hagar's out in the wilderness and her kid's about to die and then God intervenes. And I found this interesting as I was just reading through some of these commentaries. It says, if you have had to watch a child die, I guess you will have mixed feelings about the boy's story. In one sense, stories about God's raising people from the dead, healing people or rescuing people from oppression are of little use to most of us because God does not do that for us. They may seem more hurtful than comforting. Yet they may also be an encouragement. They declare that our experience is not the only reality and they open up possibilities for hope and basis for prayer. God has been known to rescue people in this way, so maybe God might do that for me. We had these mixed emotions perhaps as we go back and we read this story of God saving this family. 
Because as we've lived our lives, we've had difficulties and we've had struggles and we've had moments and we've had prayers where we say, God, show up and do something. And he doesn't. And how we reconcile those two things in this story is, is, is deeply embedded so much of the human experience, so much so that when we just hear Paul talking in, in Galatians chapter four, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. If we don't know this backstory, if we don't know what is going on in this text, we're gonna miss some of the theological richness that is happening here. And so much of this Old Testament story, I think, can land where we are today. We learn about Sarah and we learn about Hagar and we see all of their characteristics and how they just go back and forth. But one of the most important things I think that we see in this story is the fact that when God shows up initially to say to Abram, listen, man, I've got a plan for you. And then nothing seems to happen for years and years and years. Now, I doubt that many of us today have been sitting on a promise for 25 years. Maybe some of you have. But for most of us that haven't even been alive too much longer than that, I'm going to put myself in that category. Thank you very much. We haven't struggled and we haven't wrestled that long, but we still know what it's like to sit and wait for God to show up. We still know what it's like to wait for our prayers to go up and not seem to be answered in the way that we think that they should be or not even in a way that we think that they are actually being answered. There's this tension that we have even when we hear this story, we look at this and we can sympathize with Abe who begins to take things into his own hands, who begins to wheel and deal with, with his lady to try to figure out like, what do we do? We've got this promise. How do we, how do we make good on it? But we see God being faithful. Even if his timing seems to be awful. Even if it seems to be so much longer than what they were thinking it would be originally. Even if it seems to have extended the bounds of any realistic time frame. We see God being faithful. We see these people in the midst of that wrestling with who they are and the faith that they have. Even though it says that Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, we understand and we see the tension in the midst of that belief. And I guess one of the points I'd like to make this evening is wherever we are, I would imagine that some of you in this room find yourself in that tension where you believe, where you trust, where you understand the promises, you understand who God is, but you might not see it. You might not feel it. You might not believe that it will happen for you. The very best understanding that I have of this text and the very best understanding that I have of life, and I hope this doesn't shortchange it. Wait. And in the midst of the waiting, keep fighting, keep struggling, keep believing, keep trusting. And for the rest of you, you know who your people are that are in the midst of that moment. I would encourage you, as I always do, to surround them with your loving arms and with your hopefulness and with your trust beginning to believe for them that God will be good and that God will show up and that when we pray these big prayers that they will be answered, that God will reach down and meet us where we are. 
I think that our community has been really heady for a long time. And maybe with some of that, we've, we've not allowed ourselves to go there a bit and, and allow God to do these great things. And my hope tonight is that we would see these stories of people struggling and wrestling and see their failures and see their hurts and see the way that they hurt each other to walk into that story, but then on the other side to see how God shows himself to be faithful, even in the midst of crazy circumstances. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.